Uh, as we begin, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, today as we celebrate our patronal feast day of St. Mary's, we thank you for your mercy and love for us. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent into the world as a human child, uh, born of a human mother, uh, to grow to manhood, to suffer, and then to die for our sins, so that we may be saved in Him. Father, we pray that you grant us the power of your Spirit to live our lives as those who are so blessed by you. We praise your name. We magnify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Our friends, today uh, we are looking at Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55 that uh, Reverend Kubuwa read just now. The song or hymn of Jesus' mother, uh, Mary, on page 1019. And if you turn to the middle of your bulletin, you will find a sermon guide that might be helpful. And uh, there is some space for you to make notes. You are one of those who uh, make notes. Our friends, on the 4th of September this year, the World's Press carried the announcement by Kensington Palace that the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge were expecting their third child. And this child, regardless of his or her gender, will be fifth in line to the British throne. Back here in Malaysia, just uh, uh, last week, the local press carried the Johor Palace's announcement of the birth of a son to the Crown Prince of Johor and his uh, wife. And this child is the second in line to the Johor throne after his father. Now, friends, as we know, uh, while royal households have always featured prominently in the press, these two news items uh, were of special interest because they concerned uh, concerns the birth of an heir to a royal throne somewhere. Don't get me wrong, that's not to say that the births of other ordinary babies are not interesting. While they may not have the same drawing or star power, the advent of any child is usually very special to the parents and to the families concerned. And back in history, 2,000 years ago, in Judea, a small uh, strip of land in Palestine, in the Middle East, two very ordinary women were expecting their first babies. And we see this in the opening verses of uh, chapter 1 in Luke, that two cousins, Elizabeth and Mary, conceived their babies under rather unusual circumstances, to say the least. Elizabeth was barren, we were told, and both she and her husband, Zachariah, were advanced in years. They never dreamt that they would be the proud biological parents to any child. But the angel, the angel Gabriel came and told Zachariah that Elizabeth would bear a child in her old age. The child, John, would be great before the Lord. He would be like Elijah in spirit and power, and he would make ready a people for the Lord. In other words, John would be the forerunner uh, of the Lord who will make the path straight for the Lord when he comes. And six months later, after this announcement to Zechariah, God sent the same angel, Gabriel, to Mary and told her, that though, Mary, you are, you are a virgin and had not known a man, you would conceive a child to be called Jesus. 
by the power of the Holy Spirit you will conceive, and he will be called the Son of the Most High God, and he would reign over an everlasting kingdom. Two such tremendous expectant births, and births that would have an everlasting impact on the future of mankind, went unnoticed by the general public of the time, even though it concerns a royal birth. The young girl Mary, on being told by Gabriel the secret that he, her cousin Elizabeth had been keeping for the last six months, hurriedly made a journey to visit her. And when they met, the unborn baby within Elizabeth leapt with joy, we are told. And Elizabeth, his mother, greeted Mary with these words, as the mother of my Lord, in a flash of revelation and recognition. Uh, please turn with me uh, to page 1019 of the Church Bible, as Mary responded to Elizabeth in a song of praise and joy. We now consider the song and hymn of Jesus' mother, Mary, the Magnificat. And we will look at the, this passage in three parts. Firstly, Mary sharing her praises as she magnifies the Lord. And secondly, Mary reminding us that it is the Lord's sovereign choice. And thirdly, Mary telling us of God's grace in human history. So as we look at the text, we begin as Mary shares her praises as she magnifies the Lord. And we read this um, starting with verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. Now friends, to magnify means to make big or great, uh, to exalt, uh, to glorify, to praise and to worship. And Mary does this with her whole being as she speaks of her soul and her spirit taking part in this exaltation of God. It is like Mary opening uh, for us to take a glimpse deep inside her to see her deepest and her most personal feelings, her soul and her spirit. And yet, in that same very breath, it draws our attention not to herself, but to something, someone infinitely larger than herself. Her focus was on the Lord, far beyond her human status. And how do we know this? Well, who is this a Jewish girl praising as a Lord? Whose greatness, whose majesty, and whose glory is she talking about? Well, the answer lies in the name for the Lord that Mary uses. It is translated from the Hebrew as the Greek word kyrios, or if you are one of those uh, uh, Puritan Greek, huros uh, in Greek. Uh, we use kyrios, it's easier to pronounce. And we know that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses this same word kyrios for Jehovah. Jehovah, the God of Israel, recited a name, the name that is recited every day by all the Jews from their very young age, uh, in the words of the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 5. And this is, these are the words of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is the only Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And Mary sees herself just as an insignificant, lowly peasant girl, worshipping an immense God, the one and only. If you like, God is Kampong, looking at the sky as an unimaginable, 
an unimaginably great God, her one and only Jehovah, the God of Israel. But Mary does not stop her praises there. He, she continues, she rejoices at her Savior. Now, in Old Testament thinking, typically in the writings of the Psalmist and the prophet Isaiah, the writings associate Savior with Redeemer, uh, the one who saves being the one who sets free those in bondage. You find this same concept in Old Testament uh, writings in Exodus, uh, where God redeems his people from Egypt, or in Joseph, who was put in the, in the, in the pit, and um, the, um, uh, the slave traders come and bought him, bought him off his brothers, or Ruth, in the book of Ruth, where the Redeemer uh, relative redeemed her. And while Mary does not use the, the name Redeemer here, I think it's quite safe that she has the same Jewish uh, association of Savior and Redeemer. And if we can accept that, then we can ask the following question. Mary needs to be saved and set free from what? The answer must be, she needs to be saved and redeemed from the fallen human state. She needs to be released from the evil of sin and death. And she can only turn to God to do this for her. In doing so, we see that Mary does not claim to be free from sin. She needs to be saved and set free, just like any other person since creation besides Jesus. Now back to the New Testament, where Saviour is usually associated with Redeemer, uh, as well as with other action words uh, by God, like uh, adoption or sending of the Spirit. We see that the word Saviour is found for the very first time here in Luke chapter 1. And Luke will only record it once more. And that is, he will record it when the angels will speak to the shepherds in the field six months later at the birth of Jesus. Let me read Luke, 1, uh, Luke 2, uh, verses 10 to 11 for you. The angel said, uh, said this to the, to, to the shepherds in the field, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. Thus Luke connects for us that Mary's saviour is her baby that will be born into the world on what we will celebrate as Christmas Day. Jesus the Christ, the one who has come to save and redeem the world. Let's move on as Mary reminds us that it is the Lord's sovereign choice. In verse 48, we read that Mary writes this way, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, uh, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now, the humble extent has two words that are connected to each other. One is humble, the other one is extent. And uh, some parts of the church have used these two verbs, or these two words, uh, to, to dream up certain connections that should not be there. The humble extent Mary refers to does not mean that her humility deserves to be rewarded by God. Humble. Just because she's humble doesn't mean that she, reserved, uh, she deserves to be uh, rewarded by God. And it is also clear that it is not her low status 
uh, a lower social status or her estate that deserves to be noticed and rewarded by God either. Rather, you know that Mary is focusing on the Lord who has made the choice, who has, in her own words, looked at her, or uh, Martin Luther is going to use another word, in other words, regarded Mary with favour. Martin Luther puts it this way, for not her humility, but God's regard is to be praised. For when a prince takes a poor beggar by the hand, it is not the beggar's lowliness, but the prince's grace and goodness that is to be recommended, uh, that is to be commended. Our friends, it's important to get this right, for it leads us to the next point. Now, we read just now, all generations from then on will see her as favoured by God given a special grace or blessed. The part that he has been chosen by God to play in God's salvation plan is unique. Nobody else can replace them. And Mary's name would forever be associated with this. But Luther wants us to get it right again this time. He says, not that he is to be praised thereby, but God's grace towards her. For in proportion as we ascribe merit and worthiness to her, we lower the grace of God, hence all those who press or who heap such praise and honour upon her head are not far from making an idol of her, when in truth she trusts this from her and would have us honour God. And Mary confirms this with her next words. Mary confirms this with her next words in uh, verse 49. And she writes this way, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Her God, the Almighty Jehovah, has acted for her. But God is not only acting on her behalf, as she goes on to say in the following verses, 50 to 55, that this is the holy God acting in human history to save and redeem an unholy world that is lost to sin and death. Uh, we come to the final part of our passage, Mary tells of God's grace in human history. Firstly, Mary speaks about his mercy to those who fear him. In verse 50, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. God's grace is shown in his mercy to those who come to him like a helpless earthly child coming to his earthly father after doing something wrong. Trusting fully, not fearing his father, but trusting fully that his father will do the right thing in spite of all the silly things that the child has done wrong that has hurt his father. The child knows that the father will be merciful. And friends, do you realize that this trust can only exist in a child who has a continuing loving relationship with his father? Now, Secondly, Mary goes on to point uh, us to God's grace as seen in his righteousness when he acts with the rich and the powerful. Now, for Mary, scriptures has taught her that her God has acted rightly when, she, when he pulled down the conceited, the haughty, and the powerful kings, as he says in verses 51 to 52. She writes that he has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. We are reminded in these words how God acted uh, towards 
Pharaoh in the Exodus, how an unrepentant uh, Pharaoh with a hardened heart made the biggest mistake of using the Egyptian magicians against the power of the Almighty Jehovah, of pitching Pharaoh's uh, chariots and soldiers against the power of God's Holy Spirit, how God in His infinite power was seen by Pharaoh to part the Red Sea and, and bring Israel safely out of Egypt and yet chased after them with His chariots and His soldiers and were overwhelmed by the sea when God brought all the waters back. And how God then brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey. And Mary's words also reminds us of God's righteousness when He acts for the repentant sinner and judges the unrepentant ones like Pharaoh. Mary speaks of the humble and those of lowly estate, a picture of the repentant who comes to the Lord in humility and what King David calls contriteness of heart. He kneels at the feet of the Lord and with childlike faith knows that God will act for him. He, who otherwise is helpless in a world of sin and death, only the Lord can deliver him. Holding up hands that are empty and yet open wide for the gift of grace from God. In contrast, what do the unrepentant do? Well, the unrepentant will come to the Lord full of their own importance and their own power, trusting that their own works and their position in church or society or their financial contributions will cause the Lord to pay attention to them. They will be brought low from the heights of their own conceit, just like Pharaoh. When they come before the Lord with hands that are full of their own selfish richness, they will not be filled. Rather, they will be sent away empty. For they do not come with a hunger for the grace of God, but are full of their own piety, holiness, strength, and power. And lastly, Mary brings us back to Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 17, where God unilaterally made a binding agreement to bless His people Israel forever and ever. Verse 50, verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now friends, this side of the cross, the spiritual Israel, the repentant believers in Jesus Christ are the recipients of this Abrahamic blessing that has been promised 4,000 years ago by God. And Mary is to play a key role in the fulfillment of that promise. She is to be the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. She will give birth to a child, and that child will grow up to be a man, and he will suffer, and he will die on that terrible cross and bear the sins of the whole world so that those believing in him will be saved. So in conclusion, friends, what can we bring home with us uh, on this day as we celebrate St. Mary's Day? Well, three things. First of all, the Magnificat directs our worship to God and not to Mary. As Luther reminds us, any attempt to point, um, uh, to point us towards Mary as a supreme or perfect human detracts from the grace and glory of God. And worse, it becomes a form of idolatry. 
And in fact, it is extremely dangerous as we place a human on the level with God, just as Adam and Eve tried to do when they seek to, to have equal uh, knowledge as God has. We must not be laid down that path. Now, secondly, the Magnificat holds a warning for us not to depend on our own merits, but on the grace of God. Now, God is righteous. God is sovereign. And in His choice, no one can say nay to Him, no matter what we may think personally. We cannot do anything for our own salvation, not our wealth, not our social status, not our church position, neither is it our hard work uh, for our church ministries or in the, in the social ministries outside of church. It is and always will be about God. Thirdly, the Magnificat holds a great encouragement for us by reminding us that God has in His Son, Jesus Christ, done everything necessary for our salvation. Our salvation lies only in the completed work of Christ on the cross. As Jesus died to carry the sins of the world, and we respond by loving Him and loving our brother as ourselves. And we must, as Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. Three things, friends. Let me just run through that again with you. Firstly, the Magnificat directs our worship towards God and not to Mary. Secondly, the Magnificat holds a warning for us not to depend on our own merits, but on the grace of God. And thirdly, the Magnificat holds a great encouragement for us by reminding us that God has in His Son, Jesus Christ, done everything necessary for our salvation. As Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for reminding us today as we celebrate St. Mary's Day to focus on your grace. For it is only in your Son, Jesus Christ, that we are saved. And Lord, help us to respond and send us out in your spirit to tell the world of your Son, Jesus Christ, without fear, to point others to trust in him, just as we trust in him, and be saved. We magnify your holy name, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.